0: again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the show. Uh, As you know, my name is Jeff Blani. I'm the host and the executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. This podcast comes to you thanks to the generosity of our friends at Mountainside Treatment Center up in Canaan, Connecticut, where they provide individualized clinical, medical, and wellness services to those individuals struggling with substance use and mental health disorders. Each treatment plan is structured through collaboration with the client, their family, and healthcare professionals to offer every client their best chance at long-term recovery. Mountainside is proud to be the only rehabilitation center in a state to be accredited by both CARF International and the Joint Commission. They are currently recruiting passionate and talented individuals for their Connecticut New York locations. Every employee, regardless of position, plays a role in improving the lives of clients and their families And if you're interested in joining the Mountainside team, please visit them at mountainside.com forward slash careers. On behalf of the Board of Directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. Research from the American Psychological Association presented at their 108th annual convention over 20 years ago, found that higher levels of religious faith and spirituality were associated with several positive mental health outcomes, including more optimism about life and higher resilience to stress, which may help contribute to the recovery process. With substance use disorders being biopsychosocial and spiritual diseases, the field has long held that the role of spirituality is part of the recovery process. Because spirituality itself is extremely personal, we believe the definition should be left up to the individual. The broad term can refer to a connection with a higher power outside of the individual or to a broader sense of meaning. Spirituality can also be defined as a connection to nature, to the universe, or to all living creatures. People can define spirituality by whatever connection is meaningful to them. My guest today is Rabbi Richard L. Eisenberg. Rabbi Eisenberg was born in Bridgeport in 1952, received a B.A. from Duke, but we won't hold that against you being Yukon fans up here and an MA from Smith College in the Jewish Theological Seminary. In 1982, Rabbi Eisenberg received ordination from the Jewish Theological Seminary and went on to serve as a congregational rabbi spending 35 years at synagogues in Columbus, Georgia, Wayne, New Jersey, Woodbridge, Connecticut, and Torrington, Connecticut. He also worked for 10 years up until 2017 as a rehabilitation counselor at the Apt Foundation in Connecticut, where he provided group and individual therapy for people with substance use disorders. He received his certification and drug, uh, excuse me, certificate from drug and out counseling from Gateway Community College in 27, and is a certified addictions counselor. Rabbi Eisenberg is currently serving at Rabbi at Congregation, please help me if I say this wrong, Rodef Shalom. Perfect. In Bridgeport, Connecticut. He is the author of Judaism, Addiction and Recovery, a spiritual and faith-based approach published in 9. 2019. He's also one of my closest friends in the field in Connecticut. Thanks for being with us today, Rabbi Rick.
1: Hey, Jeff, it's my pleasure. And I just want to add that I always root for UConn basketball, except when they're playing Duke. Well, so,
0: as long as we don't reference Christian Leitner, we'll be okay. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's right. He he also stuck into to he also he also gave Kentucky their comeuppance as well. But we won't get into that either. Okay.
0: Well, I kind of enjoyed that one. Yeah. So I'd like to jump right into the heart of the matter as we sure. begin. You know, we recognize that substance use disorders are diseases of isolation. We talk about loneliness and isolation. Um, that kind of feeds into the existential needs of individuals to be connected to or part of something larger than themselves. Any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. First, Jeff, I I want to thank you for uh, inviting me to be on your podcast today, and and I want to applaud just the amazing work that you and the CCB had uh, that you have been doing and will continue to do uh, on behalf of uh, recovery and healing uh, in our community. So. Um, I also want to uh, commend you on on the questions um, uh, on this particular question, and you have to admit you did you did give me an advanced kind of preview and look at some of the other questions and I have to commend you on on just the thoughtfulness and the effort that you put into these questions uh, and the first one is is certainly no exception to that um, and I want to try to keep it simple here um and I want to say that when we talk about loneliness and isolation, there are a few dimensions to this. Uh, The obvious one, of course, is the loneliness and isolation from community, from other people. But maybe a little bit less obvious is the loneliness and the isolation from ourselves. A, A kind of a separation that addiction can bring from from what I call the essential self. And I understand the essential self to be all of the fine and noble and positive qualities and characteristics of the human personality. And what addiction can do is that that it can overshadow uh, the essential self, but it never extinguishes it Entirely, there is always that flame of the soul or the spirit that burns within that I associate with the essential self. But when we're in the throes of addiction, we are cut off to a to, to either a, a lesser or greater extent from that essential self. What that means is that the addiction, whether it's chemical dependence or whatever isolates us and cuts us off from who we really are at our best in terms of our our potential as spiritual human beings so I think it starts with that it starts with the loneliness and isolation from our essential selves and then uh, once we start to uh, move into recovery and as we start to reconnect and that's a a key word here, reconnect with that essential self. Once we reclaim it, then we are better equipped to reconnect with a human society, with our families, with our friends, and with our community.
0: And and as you're talking, I'm listening and kind of imagining some things. When individuals with substance use disorders, when they're in the throes of addiction, Their behaviors are completely separate from the person that they really are. And I think you have to have a sense of comfort within yourself to to deal with that and to handle that. You know, family members and people in the community may not recognize, they say, oh, so-and-so is just this type of person, but it's really a set of behaviors separate from our true selves. And you've got to know yourself to come to grips with that and and be able to cope with it because it's very difficult.
1: No, you got to remember that it's the drug talking sometimes, not not the person, you know, in their true humanness talking or doing.
0: You know, we recognize, and many in our field will only view spirituality from a belonging to an organized religion and following the beliefs uh, of that religion. But we also, uh, people get their spiritual needs met through that affiliation. Just as there are multiple pathways to recovery, we have to recognize, and are there not multiple pathways of, of spirituality? And what are some that may come to mind?
1: Uh, the multiple paths to spirituality, I would say, um, have to do with. Well, first of all, understanding that religion and spirituality converge in in, in many ways, but they're also different. You know, religion is a series of uh, uh, dogmas and beliefs generally about God um, and uh, a series of rituals and practices, cultural norms and expectations, um, a shared history and narrative, Uh, and culture among the people who adhere to that religion. Uh, And so it's important to understand that uh, you can be a a spiritual person without necessarily being religious. You might not hold to the dogmas, beliefs and rituals and culture of a particular religion, but at the same time, you can be a deeply spiritual person in the way you connect to other human beings, in the way that you connect to your essential self, your spiritual power within, in the way you connect to other people around you uh, and a higher power. Um, In my view, you you can be a religious person in terms of like religious piety, but you might not be a very spiritual person. You might go to church or synagogue or mosque religiously, but then during the other days, in times of your life, you cheat, you steal, you lie, you know, you do all sorts of terrible things, but you call yourself a, quote, religious person, but you're not spiritual, you know? Um, I
0: didn't know you met my stepfather.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, we won't go there, right? No, I never did. Uh, but I've known a lot of people like that, unfortunately, you know, and and the gateways to, so the gateways to religion Um, And spirituality often converge, but there are many gateways into spirituality that have little to do with religion. Deep breathing exercises, for instance, um, walking in the woods. Um, For me, one of my favorite forms of meditation before COVID was was swimming laps, you know, because that was kind of a, I would get into kind of a meditation zone when I would swim laps. Um, Every morning, Uh, shortly after I get up, I do two uh, practices. I meditate for at least 15 minutes. And that to me has nothing to do with religion. And then I worship, I do my morning worship, either alone or in a synagogue. Um, uh, And that's in the framework of my religious practice. And, um, and, And I consider my religious practice spiritual but I don't consider my meditation practice religious.
0: So there's an overlap. They're not mutually exclusive. There's an overlap, but there are some differences um, as well. And I asked that question when working with clients and, and they'll mention something about spiritual needs and many, you know, aren't really sure where to go, aren't really sure what they want, but may have had some negative experiences with an organized religion, be it guilt or, or, dog, you know, the dogma, but still have that that wanting to belong and something bigger than themselves. And I think it's nice to talk about the multiple pathways so that individual can find what works for them. Right. Uh, you have a really unique oh, perspective. Oh, uh, oh, go ahead. Well, well,
1: let me follow up on that just for a sec. I used to run, um, well, when I talk about the groups and the work I did at the App Foundation, I just have to add with some humility that uh, I, I worked there for a little less than 10 years, uh, which, which is, th- there were is I had colleagues and peers there who spent double or triple that amount of time in the counseling field. And they had so much more expertise and knowledge than I did. Um, and so I really have to kind of come at this with some humility. Um, I mean, what I bring to the table, I think, is that I had, before I started working at the App Foundation, 25 years experience in the uh, pulpit and congregational life and in the clergy. So I, I do bring some of that experience to the table, you know. But when it comes to counseling and, and 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 that sort of thing, I know so much less than so many of my peers. And I just had to get that out there, you know, Jeff. Um but I also wanted to say that I would often run groups on spirituality and recovery at the clinic. And I remember one time, you know, we have our, our, as you often teach and, and share, our clients are our teachers. Uh, um, and if we don't have that attitude going in, we're sunk. And, and I one time, I, I think maybe the first or second time that I ran this group, um, I started off with uh, putting on the whiteboard a definition of religions, and I asked the clients to share, you know, how do we define religion? What is religion, right? And at one point, a client piped in and said, I didn't come here to this group to learn about religion. And they were about to get up and leave the group, you know? (laughs) And I got them to stay and I said, no, OK, no, we're going to we're going to completely change the subject now and talk about spirituality. But I learned my lesson. Right. You know that when I was going to run a group like that, don't ha- it's very easy for people to misunderstand. In in that, in the act of defining religion, people can misunderstand and think that you're really there to preach religion to them or talk about religion. And there are some people who have had trauma, traumatic experiences um, in, in their own personal history with religion. So from a trauma sensitive and trauma informed approach, we have to be very careful about how we tread there.
0: One of the, the great joys that, that I take in this field, and I, I've been in it for, I don't want to say 31 years, um, is that I learn every day from different people um, because I, I had a supervisor that once told me a true professional recognizes the, that the more they know, the less they know. Right. Um, because there's always more questions and getting those questions answered is important. So I learned from, from, from everybody. Cause I think it's important to, to take different pieces, but from your uh, work in the clergy The ability to connect with people, which we know research shows is the most important part of the therapeutic, uh, of of eliciting change, you bring that strength with you and and you learn how to do that. And I think that that brings a a lot to the table um, in in that everybody is different and that you work on that therapeutic relationship. Um, because you're mindful is one of the things we talk about spirituality is mindfulness is that you're mindful of, of where you stand. I think that that's an important aspect and you learn a valuable lesson in group when they, when there's, when they're going to be a mutiny. <laughs> it happens to everybody, I think, uh, or it should, because it, it's very humbling. That's true. You have a really unique perspective, um, both as a rabbi and with your past work experience as a certified addiction counselor, um, as you aided individuals in pursuit of their own recovery. Um, In your rabbinical work, you helped others find peace and connectedness through the tenets of Judaism. And as a counselor, when you were at the App Foundation, you focused on a broader picture of spirituality and those you served from a truly multicultural community and environment. Are there similarities and differences in that work? That's a, that's a really good question. Um,
1: yeah, so let me, let me uh, list some of the uh, similarities. Um, both kinds of work, of course, um, addressed how we as uh, individuals and human beings connect with a higher power, right? Mm-hmm. And how we connect with nature and with other people. Uh, both work in the clergy and in counseling address issues of of uh responsibility um towards other people responsibility towards ourselves towards nature and the world around us um they they both both kinds of work um address the uh importance of of our search for meaning in life and the belief that life has has value and they both, you know, as a recovery counselor and as a clergy, um, I have always needed to to take seriously uh, an attitude of hope and of optimism and healing, you know, whether it's in recovery or whether it's in um, uh, people's uh, wish to try to heal uh, a relationship with God or Uh, make amends to people whom they have harmed. Um, All of it, I think, both kinds of work, I had to attack uh, as uh, a teacher and a guide. Uh, And also, I think, even though the ethics of the professional ethics that we deal with as counselors in our field um, may have some differences with religious ethics, uh, bottom line, though, I think the basic the, the basic ethics and ethical principles are are fairly universal <clears throat> when it comes to our uh, religious clergy work and counseling work. It, it all has to do, I think, the fundamental and the foundation of the ethical principles has to do with respect basic respect and honoring the dignity uh of of the individual and of the human being you know and i think so that those are similarities some of the differences though had to do with as a rabbi um um, i was really considered to be a leader and an authority in my congregation Mm -hmm. and uh as a counselor I, i would say that uh, I was I was serving as rabbi of a synagogue in Woodbridge for, for, for 13 years uh, called B'nai Jacob. And in that congregation, it was a large congregation of about 2,000 people, you know, and I had a, a, a personal assistant slash secretary and, and you know, who worked full time, you know, uh, with me. Uh, I had a, an office staff and a clergy staff. Uh, I would stand up on the high holidays and preach and uh, and teach before 1,500 or 2,000 people. You know, I had this position of authority and prestige. And then I came to the clinic. Oh, my God. What a rude awakening, man. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not only did I not have my own bathroom or my own secretary, right, or my own captive audience. But I would go into, you know, leading a group and I'd have people say, you know, what are you talking about? You know, or you're you know, you're all into, you know, you're like book learned. But, you, you know, what do you know about all this stuff? And and the F word and and the S words. And I mean, oh, my. And I mean, I would never have a congregant talk to me like that. Right. And all of a sudden, I had clients who were talking to me like I was a peer, you know, like I, I didn't have any authority over them, you know, and, and, and like I said, they became my teachers. So that was a big difference, you know, and, and also, um, you know, the, the position of leadership and authority that I was used to before as a counselor, it becomes so much different because now, you know, from a person centered approach, I don't have authority. over I, I, I would say that to some extent there there was an authority aspect to the counseling work because especially if they were if if the clients were mandated, you know, to be there. And we had to do urines, and we had to do reports. There was some measure of authority, but I, I always had to put that aside, in terms of, in favor of the therapeutic alliance. That the therapeutic alliance always came first. At least I always tried to make it come first. You know. Also, as a, a rabbi, I had to have a ritual focus, a religious focus, and as a counselor, I had to have a multicultural focus, um, and. And finally, uh, as clergy, um, the orientation was uh, a religious orientation, as opposed to as a counselor, it, it always ha- had to be a recovery orientation. So those are some of the differences. I'm sure there are many more, but that's what comes to my mind.
0: And I I, I, I think it presents a unique position. And what we, for you to understand, um, kind of the leadership there's leadership in both, but it's done differently. But also in our field, we do see a lot of individuals with faith-based backgrounds that come into the field. And for some, it's difficult to separate it. The uh, they're so strong in their beliefs of their faith that they can't separate that and kind of meet the needs of of the individuals. And they let you know when when you can't do that. But I think it's it's an important skill, and it's not a simple skill to kind of put that aside. Um, but you have the same kind of ethics as you said that, that guide you in either way, and I think that makes it right. helpful as well. Can
1: I um, add to that, Jeff? I don't know how much yeah. time we have, but you can I piggyback on that? And maybe I'm I'm gonna tread on a little bit of thin ice here to say what I'm gonna say. But what you just said about you know making that, that separation, right, between a religious orientation and background and our work as counselors. The same holds true for a 12 step orientation. You know, the importance, if we have a, if especially if we found recovery in 12 step uh, programs, to be able to put that aside uh, and in, in our work as counselors. And I've known people in my own work, uh, you and I have a, a good mutual friend with the initials of RA, yep. um, you know, who, is one of many who that that I've known who've really been uh, had the ability to 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 separate those two things: the personal experience from the professional role as a counselor.
0: And it is hard to do. It, it it's very hard to separate the personal from the professional, and it takes a lot of skill and practice to do that. And I think some of the ability to to do that comes from recognition that because those that you're working with don't want to follow the same path as you, whether it be a recovery path, a religious path, does not cheapen or affect your beliefs and what works for you in any way. It's not a a reflection of my beliefs um, and my path. And I think we see a lot of that, that if somebody says, well, I don't want to go to 12 Steps. Um, people will be offended by that. And clinicians will kind of sell the 12 steps. They'll promote rather than attract, so to speak. Um, In his book, The Abstinence Myth, psychologist uh, Dr. Adi Jaffe presents an interesting notion that is really, really simple and can't be denied. Um, In most cases, when an individual seeks treatment or seeks recovery services, the approach they get is based solely on the specific effort, expertise of the provider. And it kind of goes into what you just said. A physician will treat the biological aspects with medication, a psychologist may focus on the interpersonal, intrapersonal conflicts, 12-step facilitations do address uh, spirituality, religious leaders address issues from their beliefs, etc. cetera. What he suggests is that incorporating more than one approach is, would be more helpful. Any thoughts on the simplicity of what he just said?
1: Yeah, this is one example, Jeff, where my answer I think is going to be shorter than your question. Uh, <laughs> and, and that is that um, uh, in, in my view, the, uh, it, the person-centered approach to counseling absolutely demands that we take cues from our clients. And that we go beyond our own field of expertise or our own area of interest in order to learn from them what their interest is and what their where their openness uh, lies. So if we don't do that, if we're bringing only our own expertise into it in our own field, then we're, I think, in a sense, cheating them. If we feel a limitation in that respect, um, we need to either get work that into supervision so that we can serve our clients better, mm-hmm. or we need to uh, maybe uh, either refer our clients to another counselor or, or do a little more sharing.
0: So in your work, when you were at the App Foundation, did you really find yourself using interventions and, and discussions from many different perspectives, depending on where that client was sitting and, and what their needs were?
1: Absolutely. Um, uh, I, I can, you know, giving one example, um, I had a number of clients who had a, uh, a strong faith-based uh, background in Christianity, you know, as an example. And uh, I, um, I knew just, just from when I would sit down and do their treatment plan with them, I just knew that their um, faith uh, was a, 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 an extremely um, strong resource and support for them. Um, again, I'm excluding anyone who had negative mm-hmm. reactions or trauma-based reactions to their religious background. So I would, um, uh, knowing that, I I would pick, I would always pick up on that, you know, mm-hmm. and 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 there were even times when i would bring in a scripture with their permission if if they were open to that i would sometimes even bring in a scripture or an example whether from my you know hebrew bible the old testament or the new testament to kind of enhance uh a theme that we were exploring together and um they always respected that but i would only do it when i sensed from the client um, an interest and a willingness to go in that direction. I never ever would impose it on anyone
0: and, and asking permission to do that it's again part of a, a very strong therapeutic relationship because you're putting it in their hands to determine what they want. Dr. Jaffe's words and this just kind of came to me are are really meaningful in the larger sense as well as we look at more focus being placed on harm reduction services that it changes. It may not be somebody's perspective, but it is helping people stay alive. And it is an effective approach for many, but it's hard for some in the field to grasp because it's not where we stand. But I think incorporating a harm reduction focus um, kind of always in our head is another one of those perspectives that we need to bring to the table to help clients.
1: Let me tell you where I think harm reduction is is a spiritual value. If I may, please. Uh, I am big. Uh, I'm gung ho on harm reduction, as you can guess. And uh, I think it's a spiritual value. First of all, you just said it yourself, Jeff. Saving lives. I mean, if there, if that's not a spiritual value, I don't know what is. Right. Mm-hmm. The saving and the preservation of human life is an is the primal numero uno spiritual value in my in my in my view. Okay. Secondly. Um, the 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 whole idea of reducing harm uh, connect uh, ties in with um, the spiritual principle of the way we live responsibly as human beings in our society and in the natural world. Um, here here's a good example, and this is to me this is spiritual. So. I, when it comes to something like climate change, for an example, if I wanted to, I could take the attitude that, look, um, it's almost like it's all or nothing. Um, like if this whole, if, if, if America and if the world um, doesn't uh, um, take drastic steps to, redu- to, to, to reduce harmful effects on the environment, then I might as well, as an individual, not take it. I might as well do whatever I want to do. I might as well pollute the environment. I might as well litter, you know, and trash and and you know, trash the environment around me and, and show no care or regard because what's the difference, right? But the harm reduction piece comes in 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 terms of I'm gonna do my own little part if I can to reduce the harm on the environment and to reduce climate change, even what little I do, is valuable. And that's a spiritual principle, in my view.
0: And I I never looked at it from that perspective, but it's interesting, and I I couldn't agree more. Uh, Are there ways that clinicians can approach the topic of spirituality with clients in a way that is encouraging and accepting? Certainly with permission is the first part. I think that we want to do that you just said, but what are some other ways? Yeah.
1: um, The way we listen to our clients. Mm -hmm. Um, One of my character defects, one of my bad habits, I've probably done it with you today, (laughs) but I I do it often is uh, interrupting, you know, and uh, I sometimes uh, will stop someone or interrupt someone uh, uh, while they're speaking, because I have to kind of get my thought out there. And I think that in a clinical uh, environment can do uh, harm uh, to our clients, because it takes away, you know, ability to to really attend and to really listen. Um, if I can show active listening skills in, in a session with a client, um, uh, then I'm role modeling the ability to listen, to take seriously what they have to say, to, 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 uh, to empathize, to take into account the client's needs. And, and uh, I think they look to us to do that. You know, if, if, if I'm sitting there interrupting them all the time, or even like in doing a, a treatment plan, if I'm telling them what they need, what ought to be their, the issues on their treatment plan the way I see it, instead of listening to them and letting them help create their own treatment plan, right? So I think it's that the ability to kind of come alongside them and listen, that's a role modeling thing. And that too is a spiritual value because it has to do with how we connect with a person's soul, with a per with with a person's essence, you know? Um to, for me, I, I, I took when I was early on in in the field, I took an extensive training in and uh, it occupied several months in motivational in interviewing uh, and motiv- and met motivational enhancement therapy, and um, that was a huge help for me because it taught me the importance of asking open questions. So I think when we're engaging with our clients. And try to kind of bring out their own spirituality. Uh, it's really important to ask open questions about their spirituality. You know, um, uh, to ask them what what is it that you uh, you know what is it that that interests you about spirituality in your life? Do you um, what are some of the things you do that you feel makes you more spiritual as a person? You know. Um, and how can you reconnect with your essential self as a spiritual person? One of the challenges I would often issue to clients would be, I would say to them, as you continue to travel this journey of recovery, think about the things you did as a child, the things you were good at, the things you liked. What, what were some of your hobbies? Did you learn a musical instrument? You know, did you build model airplanes? You know, what? what what whatever, what did you do? What did you like to do? that the um that the substance use disorder may have interfered with and gotten in the way, maybe for years. Maybe think about kind of reclaiming some of those. What were some of those things that you did that you might want to try again? You know the, this is all part of the way we reconnect with the essential self.
0: it It, it really sounds to me like one of the things you're saying is just being there in the moment, being fully present for somebody is is a spiritual task. It's a spiritual uh, uh, behavior, and you're modeling it and sharing it with that individual, that you're helping them get back in touch with their essential self and be more mindful of what's going on. And that in itself is a spiritual base. Absolutely. As we, we talk a lot in this field about self-care, and we, we tend to put it in things of going on a vacation, taking a day off, and things like that. But one of the things that experts are talking about is mindfulness. Mindfulness in the moment is really an important way of self-care, um, and I look at it as emotional intelligence is another one. Um, how does spirituality help us be more mindful?
1: You know, I can't really separate uh, the two, you know, spirituality for mindfulness. I think they, they pretty much go hand in hand. Um, I was, um, fortunate maybe about three years ago to take, uh, the, the course in, uh, MBSR mindfulness-based stress reduction. Um, and, uh, based on John Kabat-Zinn and others work you know and uh i thought this was for me this was uh, tremendously helpful um when you know when it comes to self care uh i think that spirituality uh incur- and and mindfulness all encourage us to be more now now centered as you mentioned just a few moments ago jeff Uh, And also to, to, to set some healthy boundaries, you know um, you hear in the rooms often, but in other places, you know, no is a complete sentence Uh, to learn how to say no. When I'm learning and and I'm Jeff, I know you'll never believe this to look at me, but I'm 68 years old. I know you're (laughs) going to say, oh, you look like you're 75, (laughs) but anyway, it's it's taken so all these years, and I'm I'm still learning how to say no in, uh, as a way of setting a healthy boundary for myself and self care without going into all sorts of explanations and justifications of why I'm saying no. Uh, you know, no, I can't, I can't, I can't be there at this particular thing because I'm doing something this, that, or the other. I had to kind of prove to the person you know, as the people pleaser that I am, you know, I had to prove to them that I'm saying no, because the other thing that I'm doing has justification. And I'm still learning that lesson. And it's a tough lesson, but I'm getting better at it. Thanks for not saying no
0: to me. I appreciate that.
1: (laughs) I couldn't say no. Like I told you in the email, how can I say no to you? Right. Um, (laughs) And, uh, and, and also, you know, um, the other aspect of this self-care thing, the only other thing I want to say about this, but I think it's maybe even more important <clears throat> from a mindfulness perspective, is to refrain from judging and punishing and blaming ourselves. You know, all of this self-judgment kind of stuff and and beating myself up or uh, for doing X, Y, or Z <clears throat> is, is not healthy in any respect. It just causes more internal inflammation, self- anger, all that self-recrimination is is harmful. And mindfulness actually invites me to step away from that and to really practice self-care and to learn how to love myself better.
0: That's kind of a nice way to finish, a nice positive way for us to kind of wrap it up. But before we finish, um, is there anything you'd like to add or let our listeners know, kind of like your book or your training with the women's consortium coming up next week?
1: Uh, <clears throat> thank you. yeah, by by way of uh, shameless self-promotion, Jeff, since you know, you invited me to do it, so I will. Uh, yes, I, I do have this book called uh Judaism, Addiction and Recovery um, a, a Spirituality and Faith-based approach. And that book, Actually, I think can be of interest to anyone, uh, not just from the Jewish perspective, but from any faith-based uh, and even a spirituality perspective. And you can you can find it um, on Amazon.com, either on Kindle or uh, as a paperback. I'm also I finished a second book. the The tentative title of the book is Everyday Addictions colon, uh, roadblocks and signposts. <clears throat> I haven't gotten it published yet. I'm kind of shopping it out to potential publishers. I I, I hope it'll get picked up somewhere. I'm waiting to see if it will. Uh, but on that note, I am giving a, a talk, a Zoom uh, talk for the Connecticut Women's Consortium next Tuesday at noon. Um, They have a a monthly lunch and learns series that they started during COVID, and they invited me to speak next week. And the the title topic is A Brief Introduction to Everyday Addictions. And that's going to be at noon. uh, And I'm sure if any, uh, uh, I, I think if your listeners are hearing this podcast, it may be after I've already given that. I'm not
0: sure. Uh, It'll air on Wednesday. But as I, uh, as I advertise this, I'll make sure I put the link for the Women's Consortium in there.
1: Okay, good. Yeah. So I'm doing that next Tuesday. And then I'm doing a three hour training uh, on August third. It's the same training I did for them last summer. And the topic is uh, spirituality, addiction and recovery colon leaving religion at the door. And it's a three-hour training from one to four on August 3rd. I've and already registered. That, huh? I've already registered. Oh, cool. But oh great, thank you. I don't have much to teach you, Jeff, but but oh yeah, you'd uh, be
0: surprised.
1: Well, knowing that you're gonna be there, I'm gonna to have to uh prepare even more diligently now. And uh but but also I will say that uh I know nobody's interested or concerned about this, but it's three CEUs. <laughs> just had to get that in there
0: it's important well rabbi Rick thank you for your time today I really appreciate uh having this discussion with you I think there's uh we could have talked all afternoon there's so much to learn and to talk about um uh, but I do thank you for your time and and please uh, make sure that you check out his book on Amazon and go to the Connecticut women's consortium page uh, for his training event. And uh, Rabbi Rick, I look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks.
1: Thank you, Jeff. And uh, I'll see you at your next training, too, hopefully, whenever that'll be. Okay. (laughs) Thank
0: you. That's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like to thank Rabbi Rick Eisenberg for joining us. And I really hope this discussion encourages you to learn more. Uh, We, again, extend our gratitude to Mountainside Treatment Center for their generous support. And we here at the Connecticut Certification Board appreciate everyone who's listening. And please don't forget to follow us on Podbean's iTunes, Amazon, or your favorite podcast application. We will catch you next time, everybody.